0: Well, comrade, what now?
1: Straightforward conversation. ba da ba ba I don't do
2: well with awkward silences.
1: I'm a master of a awkward bit.
0: silences
2: we're not gonna do a bit then we should just get on with it
0: welcome to between the gutters the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels i'm your co-host drew and with us is our other co-host
2: i'm the other co-host albert what a do what to do hello everybody welcome to today's episode we missed out last week because we both had a function and unfortunately we weren't able to record. But, you know, sometimes that's what happens. Life life just takes over and that's what it do. But this week we are back and it's a particularly special episode. They're all special episodes, but, you know, we are continuing our read-through, our monthly read-through of Deadly Class. Yes sir, Bob.
1: That's right.
0: And this month, we are covering Volume 5, which is also titled Carousel. Deadly not- Class is co-created by writer Rick Remender and artist Wes Craig, colored by Jordan Boyd, lettered and logo designed by Russ Wooten.
1: And edited by Sebastian Garner.
0: We're Recovering Volume 5, which collects issues 22 through 26. The trade paperback edition was originally released in March of 2017. Anything else you want to talk about before we get on with our standard
2: issue-by-issue issue commentary? Uh, No, not too much. I mean... This being a series that we've been reading through month to month, I, I think I think we've burned through all the material that we need to go to, you know, to introduce people who to the material itself. So, you know, if there's anything that they want to follow up on, you know, by all means, go check out the previous episodes and uh, get caught up. But otherwise, I, I think we're good with just jumping straight into it. All right, let's do it. Issue 22. All right. And I am going to go and read through our summaries. Daily Class, Issue 22. Summer has ended, and the new school year is starting. At the Freshman Mixer, we meet new students from the incoming class. The new faces include Kwan, Zenzel, Helmut, and Cormac. We also get the chance to catch up with the sophomore class and to see how the dynamics have changed in light of everything that has happened at the end of the previous semester, Saya is now tied for valedictorian with Shabnam and has been obvious and has obviously been shaken by being forced to kill Marcus. She is broody and isolated, and it doesn't help that all of her friends are dead. Petra has dropped her Goth look and has transformed entirely, taking on a more conventional look. But her change may belie her de- deteriorating mental and emotional state, as there are indications that she isn't handling what she had to do to survive very well. The new center of power at the school consists of Shabnam, Kelly, Troll, Grogda, Victor, Stefan, and Brandy Lynn, and Polly. Victor is as confident as ever, while Polly and Brandy Lynn Both cling tightly to Shabnam as it serves them. Stefan is another hanger on her, but he hasn't forgot what Shabnam made him do, and beneath the surface, he still resents him. Kelly is more confident now, armed with the knowledge that as long as Shabnam is attracted to her, she is the one who controls him and holds the real power. Shabnam, on the other hand, has become an anxious and paranoid wreck As he prepares to give a speech to the freshman, Stefan offers him a drink to calm his nerves. As Shabdan gives his speech, it soon devolves into a rant where his insecurities are on full display and he unloads on all of the people around him who are ingratiating themselves towards him for their own selfish gains. Stefan has spiked the drink that he's given to Shabdan with truth serum. In an attempt to humiliate him, one of the freshmen, Cormac, attempts to aid Shabnam, only to be yelled at and turned away. Cormac is then led outside by Brandy Lynn, who is taking a liking to him. The two share a smoke when Cormac starts choking. Brandy Lynn goes to fetch him some water as he comes upon as he comes upon Saya at Marcus's grave. As they talk, Master Lynn appears and he is displeased with Cormac's use of drugs on the very first day. Cormac is taken away, begging and screaming as the other freshmen watch. Randy Lynn has tricked him and makes it clear to the freshmen just what kind of place King's Dominion is.
0: Well, so uh, this issue, we start the new school year in September of 1988. They introduce these three new characters who are freshmen who end up playing a bigger role in the rest of the volume. And I guess the thing about this issue in particular that stands out is it's got really strong season two opening episode kind of vibes to me. You know, it's like we ended the last volume on this crazy cliffhanger where the main character and the main, well, most of the main cast ends up in pretty bad shape. And although we don't really fully get confirmation that they all died, the implication is that they're dead. And then we go straight into this issue where we don't get real confirmation. I mean, all the other characters seem to act as if Marcus and them and Willie are dead. So I think we're meant to assume that they're dead if we take that at face value. The story gives us these new characters, new cast members, so it just seems like a new start, you know? And it's the beginning of the new school year.
2: Yeah, yeah. I will also say that the new dynamics that they've set up, it does up the stakes a little, Where whereas if we consider the previous volumes of Deadly Class that we read as season one, as as you put it, then it does really feel like the environment has changed, even though they're still at school. Um, Season one really viewed the story through Marcus's eyes as a new student coming into this school and trying to become, you know, popular and, or head of the class or whatever, right? Just trying Mm -hmm. to survive school. But there's a certain menace that exists in this opening act of this volume where you really get to see the machinations of these kids as just kind of, you know, teenage Napoleons. As they manipulate one another and as they plot against each other, it's it's a very different v- feeling compared to that first, uh, first year, uh, freshman year, where... All the characters are just kind of going through shenanigans and, um, you know, mm-hmm. having fights and adventures and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it, it you're really just watching as these characters have elevated the stakes and the treachery towards one another.
0: Yeah, and I think you made a good point when you mentioned how those first 21 issues feel like freshman year because we, we get thrown in alongside Marcus as we see the story through his point of view for the most part. Mm -hmm. And there's a, I hesitate to say an innocence to it because it's a pretty grim story with a lot of violence and other, you know, heavy stuff. So it's not exactly innocent, but there's a newness to it all that, we're exposed to for the first time alongside our point of view character, Marcus. Then when we get to this issue at the beginning of volume five, yeah, like you said, we're thrown in there and we don't have that freshman point of view anymore. Even though we're introduced to freshman characters, we're like the upperclassmen who have just completed a harrowing year at King's Dominion because now we know what to expect and we're, we've braced our minds for what's to come and we know that we know that there are a lot of things happening under the surface or off panel or whatever however you want to call it where you know not everything will be fully revealed to us immediately right off the bat and we're just kind of waiting for the shooter drop to you know and for the revelation of all the things uh that happened uh, whether it was in the in the previous issue or just things that we're kind of expecting to happen to the characters, because like I don't know about you, but once I saw these four new characters being introduced, I think the first thing I thought of was like, I wonder which one of these guys is gonna get messed up first.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I mean, it pretty much happens by the end of the at the end of the issue.
2: Exactly. Like it, it's like you were saying where. I think when we enter the freshman year with Marcus, we're not really privy to the knowledge of what the culture of the school is like. I mean, it's obviously a school for assassins, but there's different, there's also different kinds of, you know, not celebrations, but I guess uh, there's, you know, just different things that they do, uh, customs that they have, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. by the end of the freshman year, In the last volume, we discovered that the main custom that they have—the really big one—is their, I guess, version of like freshman Friday or something, where (laughs) you know, in order to graduate, half the class is whittled down to to half with a freshman hunt, essentially. Yeah. Um, The revelation that at the beginning of the school year, a bunch of students got these dead skeleton, these skeletons of dead rats. And they just kind of didn't know what it was. They just thought, oh, that was kind of weird. And then they didn't think about it anymore. And by the time you get to the end of the freshman year, you realize it's all part of their ritual, which is whoever has one of these is deemed a rat. And it is on the rest of the school to either kill them or be killed by them. And the survivors of this will be the ones who move on to the next next year. Yeah, pretty savage stuff. Yeah, and so when you see these freshmen come in, that's already lingering in the back of your mind, so you know what what's in store for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Did you have, out of these new characters, did you have a favorite character, or did any of them stand out to you in any way?
2: Uh, well, I think initially I I was into Quan, because, well... He's our Asian brother. He's Asian and he's kind of cool, you know, Uh, he's he's this Vietnamese kid who I guess his father was uh, a Vietnamese soldier and his mother is, uh, you know, a Western woman. And what ends up happening or his backstory is what ends up happening is, uh, you know, they they have an illegitimate child, which is him, and she goes off. I, I believe that's the story. And he's kind of raised, uh, I, like I don't want to say that he's like a self-hating or anything like that, but he definitely clings to this like weird greaser culture. Like, if you've ever seen uh, John Travolta in Grease, you know, with the pompadour and the leather yeah. jackets and you know the uh, the switchblades, that sort of thing. Yeah, like that's kind of his his gimmick. Which is weird in the 80s. I don't know if that was a cool thing in the 80s or not, but...
0: <laughs> it's hard to believe that was a cool thing at any time other than the 50s.
2: Yeah, yeah, right? Like, maybe it's a Buddy Holly Weezer sort of thing where
0: it's... It's meant to be ironic.
2: Yeah, it's the one kid being ironic, and that's what makes him cool, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But... um. I did enjoy his confidence and his cheekiness. There, there was something about that that I'd enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the later issues, I do come to like Helmet quite a bit. Helmet's just like you don't really see too much of him in this first issue, uh, other than just them kind of talking with each other at, at the mixer, and he's just kind of talking about how he hates the music cuz he's really into metal mm-hmm. and you know he's kind of being not necessarily hostile to them but he's not necessarily like friendly with the the with Zenzel and uh Quan and Cormac you know This first just... impression that he gave me is that he's
0: a a diet Victor what's that you know like a diet
2: version of Victor oh Okay, I can see that. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were describing like some sort of subculture or something. I was like, "Oh, I don't know what that is." <laughs> uh, you know all those date di- diet Victor kids? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Wow, that, I'm really out of it. I don't know what that is at all, but <laughs> but uh yeah, I can see that for sure, right? Just kind of just kind of a kid who goes around being a tough guy essentially you know mm-hmm, i guess mm-hmm. their version of a jock or something but i think the more i learn about him the more you see about him uh, in in the following issues I, I i'd say he becomes more my favorite over time he becomes more likable yeah he's not it turns out he's not really as much of a victor
0: as i thought he's his own character, his own person. Very much so. Yeah, much Victor so. is more of the stereotypical jock and Helmut is more of the metalhead who is into Dungeons and & Dragons and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and he likes comics. He's kind of into nerd stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's, uh... Yeah, yeah, we we can talk about it later as, as we go into it, but, you know... uh yeah, I, I think just, okay, if we're just going based off this issue, I'd say Quan was someone that I I I thought I was going to enjoy more uh, just because, you know, he was kind of roguish. Mm-hmm. So, how about you?
0: Yeah, I think very much along similar lines as you. Uh, The other two characters, I was into Quan, this issue, and then the other two characters, Zenzel and Helmut, uh, uh, I think the the later issues do delve into their personalities a bit more, and I'd say Zenzel is a pretty fascinating character to me, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about her more when we get to the issues that spotlight her a bit more, but from issue 22, I, yeah, I guess I'd say uh, Quan is the one who gets the most scenes or the most dialogue, so he naturally stands out a little bit more.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm kind of curious, what did you think of the sophomore class dynamics and how it's changed? Just looking at the student body council of the sophomore class and how they behave towards each other after everything that's happened in the previous year, what did you think of their dynamics?
0: I think it totally fit the mold of what we should have expected. Like that, realistically speaking, if these were the kinds of personalities that we were forced to see each other every day. I think that's how it would be, you know, uh, whether yeah. or, or not they were in a high school for assassin kids or not. Like, these are just the kind of kids that there's no real reason for them to get along or even to respect each other. So, mm-hmm. throwing these volatile personalities into the mix and having them essentially sit at the table of power to, Try and uh, run the school. Run the school, yeah. That that obviously isn't going to be very stable because these people do not get along with each other, and they don't even really like each other or respect each other in any meaningful way. They're kind of all just using each other as long as they can, as long as they can get something out of this little partnership. Yeah. And you can see that even the way that uh Stephen or Stephen however you want to pronounce his name when he gives the <laughs> truth serum to Shabnam and lets him you know, humiliate himself when he's given this speech to the to the new class. Yeah. And it it just turns into a really bad mess. It's the kind of thing where if somebody gave a speech like that, it would be pretty tough for everybody else to maintain respect for him moving yeah. forward.
2: Yeah, it's which is weird because shapnam is supposed to be the valedictorian, and you know, for the kind of environment they're in, even though they're high school kids, there's an understanding that there's a severity to what they do, right? So, it's, I guess. It's, it's these competing ideas that exist where, on the one hand, they're still high school kids and that makes them as vapid and as shallow as high school kids. But on the other hand, on another level, there's this understanding that we are here to be the power players for the next generation, right? Like mm-hmm. the elite power players of the world have sent their kids to this school and they are raising us to be the assassins and the power elite For the next generation. So there's this understanding that. You know conventional good looks. Or conventional popularity. Isn't necessarily the thing. That's going to run the school. That's why someone like Shabnam. Can be in that position. Mm -hmm. Um, You know he's he's kind of a doughy. Frumpy looking chubby kid. And. At the same time. He's not. Maybe he's not the most popular kid at the school. In terms of likability. But he is the most visible kid because he is the valedictorian. He is the most successful kid at doing at at at, at doing school, I guess. Uh at doing King's Dominion. There's <laughs> I don't yeah. really know how else to put it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And last time we were talking about volume four, I think one of the things that we mentioned is how he kind of is the kingpin the Wilson Fisk of the class. And I feel like one of the things that we often see in Kingpin stories is a lot of other crime bosses trying to vie for the throne. Mm -hmm. And they may not necessarily just overtly, you know, go up to him and try and kill him and, you know, take his power or anything, but it's usually a little bit more complicated than that sort of feels like the same idea is at play here where sure Victor's a lot stronger than him and probably could just you know mess him up or kill him if you really wanted to but it's not really going to work at this school because of the rules that are in place so there there's a certain structure to everything to the i guess the foundation of his power and it kind of makes the dynamic more interesting because these conflicts aren't going to be solved solely by violence you're gonna have to expect some kind of guile and you know conniving and cunning and wits people facing off with Various forms of emotional manipulation and things like that just to get what they want, which is
2: probably the power that Shabnam has. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch what's happened to him since the last volume, right? Because Mm -hmm. in the last volume, he's sitting pretty high and he's pretty smug because when they announce, you know, the freshman ritual uh i I forget if there was an official name for it the the rat hunt or whatever right Mm -hmm. um yeah he's pretty pretty pleased with himself because he's been able to cultivate secrets and use them against people and basically get them to do his bidding and his dirty work for him and he's made himself you know the ruler of this little army of savages and yeah. he's – at the end of that volume, he's he's sitting in a pretty high place, and you would think that that carries over. But then when you see him in this volume, he has gained a bunch of weight. He's, like, stress eating. He doesn't look all that well. And then when Stefan slips him the, the truth serum, he just goes off on everybody and Yo. starts talking about how, you know – he, he essentially starts talking about how he doesn't trust anyone at the school and how the only people that are around him are people that want things from him. And it's it's a huge sign of his weakness right on display for everyone to see, you know?
0: Yeah, a lot of his weaknesses as well as his various insecurities. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: So it's I, – I don't know if – well – I guess I would consider that a subversion of my expectation from him at this point. Uh, just because, I, yeah, I, I kind of was expecting that entering this new school year, he was going to be, you know, the king of the castle. and And now we see that he's nowhere near as... What's the word? I guess he's nowhere near as stone cold as he thought he was. And yeah. he might not even be anywhere near as prepared as he thinks he is for mm-hmm. what he's going to have to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah.
0: And there's a scene uh, towards the end of his rant when he's grabbing the mic and then uh, his his uh, girlfriend and uh, – what's the other girl's name? Brandy Lynn? Brandy Lynn. Yeah, Randy Lynn and Troll are trying to grab him off the podium so he'll stop talking, but before they manage to do so, he has this one final rant, and he yells into the mic, none of these people are your friends. Everybody wants something, and as soon as you can't give it anymore, they'll cast you aside. That's what you get to live with, looking over your shoulder, constantly worrying how people are angling on you, and when they'll, and when they'll finally try and take everything from you. And, and, like, at that point, he falls off the podium and loses balance. But yeah. I felt like him shouting those things, in a way, it's kind of funny because it also f- seems like it functions, like his little rant there functions as a really cynical take on real high school.
2: Yeah, yeah. But it also kind of feels like One of those in in Greek tragedies where someone is, you know, where Mm -hmm. you have like the fates that are essentially doing monologues that are telling you what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's what you're kind of seeing there is like he he sees it all laid out before him. He's even telling you what's Mm going to happen. And yet his tragic flaw is he is not going to have the ability to stop any of it from happening when it does happen.
0: Yeah exactly and that's the thing like we don't even even if he did have the ability to stop from happening he's not the kind of character that we would root for anyway so exactly there's just something fascinating about that kind of tragic figure where it's tragic not because we feel sorry or sympathy for him but just tragic
2: from the sense that he can't it adheres to the formula of tragedy in that yeah. he saw it coming and it still yeah. happened. <laughs> exactly. He can't stop it. Yeah. It's but inevitable. And, but you're right. I don't feel sorry for him either. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: laugh at his pain.
2: Yeah. In fact, I welcome it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to talk. Another interesting character was Petra. Mm. And she was the one who in the last volume ended up being the rat that kills Billy. And... Traitor! Traitorous traitor! Wench! <laughs> is traitor! Traitorous wench! is wench! Is wench. <laughs> <laughs> but she, yeah, she ended up being the mole in Marcus's Billy, in the trio of Marcus, Billy, and her. So she ends up killing Billy in order to save her own hide. And she comes back from summer vacation and, you know, when she left, she was kind of your stereotypical goth kid. Just, I, I don't even know if that's goth. I'm assuming that's goth. I, I don't know what the official yeah. term for that is. But, you know, just all black, lots of uh, dark mm-hmm. lipstick. Um, her hair was really just kind of matty and, you know that, you, you know, just a very, like, specific yeah. look, right? And when she comes back... She is a bleach blonde, almost Stepford wife-looking sort of girl now, you know? Yeah, I didn't recognize her initially. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no one recognized her until Saya calls calls her Petra. Then it's like, oh, whoa. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you can tell that the last time we see her, she's basically leaning on top of Billy and saying, like, once you learn – She had just told Billy her backstory, and she basically says, you know, once you've stared into the face of death, you learn not to fear anymore, you know? That's, I I think that's more or less what she was saying. And she was just really leaning into, I guess, leaning into death, leaning into murder, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now that she's back, she's almost wholesome looking, really clean cut, and... Even the way that she talks around the other kids, you can tell that something isn't quite right with her. Like, I'm not entirely sure what direction she's going. Like, if she's genuinely messed up by what happened, or if she's just suppressing her inner psychopath. But something is going on there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's another one of those things where it feels like a ticking time bomb. You're just waiting to see... How she's going to explode. Exactly. Like yeah, it's like... Whatever ends up happening to her... It, it's probably not going to be great.
2: Yeah, and... Again, like Shabdim... If something bad does happen to her... I can't say that I root for her... Even if she was... Even if her... Even if she's sincerely sorry for what she did... Like it's not the sort of thing where I can look at it and be like, oh, I guess that was okay. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were there any other characters or anything that caught your eye?
0: Uh, Well, in terms of scenes, there is a scene towards the end when we have Saya uh, walking out from the party and she visits the graveyard and we do see graves, or we see tombstones for Billy, Willie, Maria, and Marcus. And it's again one of those things where the implication is pretty obvious that they're all dead, but we as the reader, we actually never saw them bury the bodies or anything, you know, like we kind of left the last volume assuming that those characters all died, but uh you know going from seeing Marcus get stabbed in the torso and then collapse and then imagine or like get get some kind of vision of him like going to see his parents again um that is the kind of thing where it feels like the narrative is trying to tell us that he's dead and when you see a scene in this issue where we have his gravestone then it feels like that should be enough confirmation to the reader that he's dead to me it still didn't really sink in like i i wanted to know for sure that he was dead or not you know mm-hmm. and it kind of feels like the creators were just trying to you know toy with us a bit they're like telling us th- that all the characters believe that Marcus is dead so we should believe that he's dead
1: yeah yeah I, I don't think
0: know what was your sense from
2: that I think we've read enough Remender comics at this point where we do know that he's the kind of writer who enjoys misdirection he likes to trick us exactly exactly and I got no problem with that it's not I think if someone can pull it off, I think it's great. Uh there are certainly a whole lot of other writers who think they're a lot more clever than they actually are and try to trick us or misdirect us and do it do it in a far less convincing way. Uh mm-hmm. I think I think Claremont is a guy who does a fair amount of trickery in what he tries to write too. Um But but I think he's never quite as good as he thinks he is. (laughs) What's an example
0: Um, of some Claremont trickery? What do you have in mind when you say that?
2: Well, this one might not count because it wasn't really something he set up. But I think of something like Grant Morrison writing the death of Zorn and then Claremont bringing him back by doing something like Zorn – was actually a twin, they were like twin (laughs) brothers. And, you know, when they killed him, it wasn't really Magneto. It was one of the twins or, you know, it's something like that, right? Like that might not have been a misdirection or a trick that he set up. But when he was given the opportunity to write himself out of that hole, that was the best that he could come up with. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that says plenty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Granted, maybe you could look at that and be like, "That's late stage Claremont," and maybe some of the stuff in Dark Phoenix Saga or health, that the Hellfire Club thing, you know, maybe some of that stuff wasn't anywhere near as uh, as bad. But I, I don't know. I I don't know if I believe that. I don't think I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> another
0: episode of Deadly Class. Another episode where.
2: Christopher, Sebastopol, Claremont take some pot shots. Exactly. We rag on that guy. <laughs> Can't help but to rag. All right. Anything else you want to move on to issue 23? Let's go on to issue 23. <laughs> In Tokyo, a gang harasses the local businesses. Their leader is Kenji, a ruthless monster who has just assumed control of his gang from his father and is intent on making his presence known and righting the wrongs of the previous regime. Among them, the return of his sister Saya and her katana. Saya, meanwhile, now trains closely with Master Lin, and the two discuss the philosophy of ethics. Master Lin is trying to instill in Saya the belief that, in their line of work, isolation is the only way. When their lesson is over, he announces that he has a new task for her. She will be overseeing a new pledge. The freshman, Zinzel Saya introduces herself to Z- to Zenzel, informing her that informing her of her status as her pledge. And Saya begins to start spending time with her and her quote unquote friend group. They end up playing a rousing game of Dungeons and Dragons. It's a good time, and for a brief moment, things don't seem so bad. When there is a knock at a- at the door, Zenzel is presented with a small chest containing the skeleton of a dead rat. Bewildered, she asks Saya if she knows what any of this means. To which Saya, after some labored hesitation, somberly repro- replies, no. Yeah, so there we are. Um, Right at the end of this issue, you know, they they build it up. With these characters having a good time, only to introduce the rat just to let us know, as as the reader, that the whole entire cycle is about to begin all over again.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's,
0: yeah. This is one of those issues where we really get a good cha- a good long chance to get to know the new cast members. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought it was pretty interesting to see how much Remender and Craig spend to build them up for us after we had spent the previous 21 issues with Marcus, Willie, and Billy and those characters. I felt like on some level, it, was, it could have been like a real step of commitment for them to continue to try and misdirect us or make us move on from the previous cast members. But it's also, you know, just good storytelling in and of itself as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I do think it's impressive how Reminder is able to build such a huge cast of characters, and he's able to work so well with all of them without feeling like they're fumbling over each other. Gives everybody just the right amount of time that we, for us, the reader, to get to know them and to believe in them as you know fully-fledged-out characters.
1: Mm-hmm. All the like,
2: dialogue and stuff that they have while they're playing Dungeons & Dragons,
0: it's like so much characterization you know like you you get to learn so much about their personalities and how they interact with each other it's a lot of story that's packed into one little
2: scene yeah yeah it puts us in a position where what we're learning from them is learned through our observation of their behaviors and not so much what they're telling us
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah i I did think that that was a pretty fun integration into the story, right? Where Saya starts hanging out with them, and then they become these fantasy characters. And you just yeah. kind of watch them just messing around, you know? And even Saya, who thinks she's kind of too too cool for school, she ends up playing along. And it's you believe that they are bonding with each other and becoming close as a group of friends you know or yeah. whatever the closest thing to a group of friends can be at a place like King's Dominion
1: mhm
2: yeah i was also going to say like at the beginning of this we're introduced to Kenji and we learn that he's a part of Saya's backstory and that's something that i hadn't thought about but it made me realize that up to this point we haven't really learned too much of Saya even though we've had like 20 or so uh about 20 or so issues mm-hmm. to you know be with her as a character. We don't really know anything about her backstory. We don't really know anything about why she's there. But now is the point in which Remender has decided okay, this is where I'm going to tease out her part of the story and give you the reader uh, a little more information which which I think is pretty well done, you know it 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 doesn't feel like we're sitting here and then twenty issues in, and we're going, wait a minute, why haven't I learned anything about her i'm you know there's no there isn't this sense of frustration that you've gone twenty issues without learning anything about her it's it feels natural, it feels like it's organically rolled out for you as the reader when it's the exact right time to learn about this character so that's right i thought that was well done yeah and they
0: her family is shown to be remorseless murderers as well
2: big surprise <laughs> 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 yeah yeah and then there's also the introduction of another kid here we he, his name is i forget toshua or something like that? I think it's
0: Tosawi, but I could be pronouncing it incorrectly. I'm not sure how it's actually pronounced, but the way it's spelled, it looks like Tosawi.
2: Yeah, and he, I believe, is either Quan or Helmut's roommate. I'm not 100% sure. I think he's Quan's roommate. And
0: Yeah, I, f- I, f- I forget too, but whatever it is, uh, he's just hanging out in the room while the rest of them are playing Dungeons & Dragons.
2: Yeah, he's not a kid that we saw at the Freshman Mixer. Uh, He's kind of surly. Oh, I think
0: he's uh, Helmut's roommate, because after they start their game, Helmut asks him if he wants to join, and he says no, and then Helmut says, Sounds
2: great, you're a real barrel of laughs, roommate. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. And he gives that really smug face where he gives him a thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah, but... Yeah, the kid we'll see more of him even though he's not really integral to the story but he i have a feeling that they're going to do more with him you know obviously as as the volumes go
0: on it kind of reminds me of when we were introduced to Shabnam earlier on because he was just Marcus's roommate yeah but he didn't yeah. really you know he was just kind of like shunted off to the side and then later on his significance continued to grow
1: yeah
2: yeah but th- so far the thing about him here is And you know what? When you mention that, it it is kind of like Shabnam, in the sense that he eventually later on in the series he ends up hanging out with them. But it really just feels like he's only hangs out with them by default
0: because he has nobody else.
2: He has nobody else exactly. And you know, even in this moment when they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you can see that he's his his entire vibe is that. He's too cool for it or he's too good for it or whatever. So he, yeah, he, he's just kind of perpetually around, but always kind of putting them down. But at the same time, I think he does, I don't know if he likes them, but maybe he wants to like them, but begrudgingly admits it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, Teenagers are time.
0: complicated,
2: man. Seriously. seriously, it's All these
0: raging hormones, you can't understand them.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would you think of that last scene? Like, did you expect that scene to happen when the uh, cloaked guy comes in and brings in the rat? Did you think that was going to be how that scene was going to play out?
0: I guess I wasn't expecting it. But then once uh she once Zenzel opened the box and we get this drawn out scene of uh confusion and then Saya looking into the box, yeah, it's like before you turn to the last page, you already know it's a rat skeleton. Yeah, yeah. And it's just foreboding.
2: It's a pretty I mean, dramatic this, reveal.
0: Yeah, up to this point, out of all the new characters, Zenzel. Seem like the one who is least like a jerk you know mm-hmm. yeah like she's probably the most i'm not sure if likable is the right word because she's still at a school for assassins but she seems like the one who at least is capable of some kind of deeper emotion other than just being sarcastic or uh, smug so for her to get the rat skeleton It's uh, another example of the harsh reality Mm -hmm. that these kids operate in at King's Dominion. Mm -hmm. What did you think about the little comic book scene when Zenzel picks up a couple of comics on the table uh, that belong to Helmut? And she's like, G.I. Joe, the Nom, the Punisher. (laughs) Guns, sweat, and macho silliness. You boys are so obsessed with your bloody guns. All your role models are cowboys or soldiers. What is it with you? And then Helmut says, I do not judge you for your feminine ways. You should not (laughs) shame me for my masculinity. I will not apologize for being born a man. (laughs) And then she says, I did not attack masculinity. I simply do not understand the obsession with violence that seems irreversibly tethered to it. Schwarzenegger and Stallone, cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, always guns, 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 always killing, killing, killing. <laughs> <laughs> and then his response is, The Nom is a good comic with great art. Michael Golden and John Beatty are the best. You should read before you judge. <laughs>
2: right, right. <laughs> I think the thing is, I think that sort of sentiment coming out of the wrong person could very much be what you consider like your prototypical toxic man, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But,
0: it was pretty but it, funny. Like it's the kind of the panel of him saying, I do not judge you for your feminine yeah. ways like that. That feels like something that a men's rights activist would take out of context and celebrate wholeheartedly without recognizing the irony exactly. of the comic.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think Helmut, you know, for for all of his bravado, like I think he's essentially a good dude, you know. He's he's a nerd, you know, at, at his core. And I don't think it, it it's like you said, right? If like a men's right activist read that, I, I'm sure they would take that and look at that as a scene that speaks to them as a vindication or validation of their worldview or whatever right mm-hmm. they might look at helmet and be like yeah he's he's definitely this guy or whatever but i don't think helmet really is he he might have some juvenile ideas but i don't at his core i don't think he's a bad dude you know as far as assassins go <laughs> yeah you gotta add that qualifier <laughs> as far as wannabe assassins go right like I don't like I think okay let's go back to what we were saying earlier like if Victor had said it then yeah I, I think I would look at that and I would have every reason to just look at that and be like yeah he does seem like the kind of dick hole who would say something like that right Mhm mhm but because because of the way that Helmet is and because I I think the thing is because Helmet is hanging out with these kids there is a playfulness to what he's saying, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if Victor was saying it he wouldn't he wouldn't say it in the context of oh, I'm hanging out with Zenzel and Quan as friends and this is just the way that we like, joke with each other, right? When, mm-hmm. if, if Victor is saying it, he's saying it because he sincerely believes that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I do think there's a difference where the context and the environment do change it, and it's, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe this is optimistic of me to say, but it's a thing where where people with differing opinions can coexist and hang out with one another without absolutely hating each other, right? Right, right. Or being disgusted by one another. So in in its own weird way, I guess it's kind of wholesome. (laughs) (laughs) I got to ask you, though, but
0: those three comics that were mentioned, G.I. Joe, The Nom, and The Punisher, you ever read any of those 80s comics or have any thoughts about them?
2: Uh, I think I've read bits of the Nam here and there. You know, it's, it, I think that's a series that had some cool art. The covers of that is are always comics that I find pretty striking. Yeah. I I don't know if they've aged as well in terms of, you know, war comics. So th- it's a little harder for me to say. I I haven't read any recently. I will say that I have read some of The Punisher from that era and... I can't say that that era's Punisher is something that I have too much uh, affinity for, personally. Mm-hmm. So, there's that, and, and I never read that era's G.I. Joe either, so. I see. Yeah. I don't know. I imagine that you've probably read more of that stuff than I have.
0: I definitely read a good chunk of the Larry Hama G.I. Joe from the 80s. It's been a long time since I've read them, but I definitely did enjoy them at the time. I don't know if I would still enjoy them as much if I reread them today, but if I ever found a trade paperback collecting those issues for real cheap, I'd probably be tempted to pick it up, you know? Like, it's something that I kind of would want to reread. Same goes with the Transformers comics from that period. So, if anybody ever made, like, an omnibus of it, dude, I would be... I probably wouldn't buy it. I would be tempted, you know? Like, I would... It would be the kind of thing that I would look at and just hold in my hand
2: and, and like, imagine owning. Right, right. I mean, I understand wanting to own it for novelty and for nostalgia's sake that, like, I'm not... Above that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And especially if like you grew up with that. I did grow up with the cartoons, so it's not like they're out absolutely outside the realm of my you know, knowledge, right? Yeah. So uh
0: I do think that those G.I. Joe comics are pretty good compared to a lot of other comics from that era though. I mean mm-hmm. the one that the one issue that everybody always talks about is the silent issue. I mean, that's a pretty groundbreaking issue in the history of Marvel Comics, I would say. Yeah. It's it's famous and really is well executed. And Larry Hama did some pretty fun stuff in terms of character development and just the long-term soap opera like plotting it's i guess in some ways it kind of makes me think of claremont's uncanny x-men with how many characters are in the story and all the various relationships and interpersonal dynamics people switching sides and uh people dying and whatnot things like that it is very soap opera like yeah yeah but you know it's still gi joe so there's a lot of fun action and I don't think it gets quite as convoluted as X-Men comics do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: I did think that the bit of dialogue following it was kind of interesting too. Uh, cause they, they have a pretty real moment after that, you know, cause it, it goes from that sort of playful bantery tone between Helmet and Zenzel. And then, what you see is, I'll, I'll just read it. But Kwan says, "I mean, great." Oh, well, okay. So Helmet they're says, talking about the Nam. Yeah, you should read before you judge, right? That's the last thing Helmet says, and Kwan mm-hmm. goes, "I mean, great might be relative." I read one; it portrayed Vietnamese soldiers as soulless monsters. The American is always the hero, and then Toshu, Toshul? I I don't know. Tawasi. Tawasi. Tosawi. Tosawi, Tosawi. Tosawi. I think he's he's sitting there in the corner. You know, they're having this conversation while they're playing their Dungeons and Dragons, and he he decides to interject himself in this conversation. And it's it's an interesting little bit, but he goes, that's because there's only one side of history, the white side. The white man chooses to live in a cage and makes up rules and then insists everyone else get in with him. And when anyone refuses, they are labeled savages and killed. It's not just masculine to be obsessed with guns, with guns. It's American. The cowboys want everyone armed, right? Tell my uncle, who dared leave the reservation with a rifle in his truck, went to file a complaint about a rotten sheriff selling drugs on our reservation. Visit his grave and you'll see what their Second Amendment really means. What they really want is all the white people armed and the rest of us in line. But fuck that, not me. I'll learn how to use their guns, and when I go back home... I'm going to kill that fucking sheriff.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Mhm.
2: It it takes a pretty heavy tone when when he starts talking. Yeah.
0: He gets way serious and then the thing that kind of like undercuts the scene or undermines the scene is right at the, after he says that uh Saya looks at him and she's like, "Dude, you need a hit of this." And she just <laughs> offers him the bong.
2: <laughs> yeah. I guess he's I guess his character arc is kind of the broody, broody, angsty kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I thought that was a interesting little exchange.
0: Yeah, that really was. It really was. All it's right. all because of comics, dude. <laughs> comics will open up your mind. Yeah. They make you think about society.
1: Recognize Those are the
2: problems in, in the world, man. Those are the kind of questions that got us to start a podcast. So these kids are us, and we is they.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: you know those uh, 80s Mike Barron comics? Uh, yeah. The Punisher comics? Those, those did not age well at all. They didn't. I don't think I, they did. I think if I had been a kid in the 80s, I probably would have liked them because they had a lot of guns in action, but yeah. having reread them or reread at least various random issues that I found in quarter bins over the years, I've realized that they're pretty cringy now. Like every time he tries to tackle some kind of social issue in his Punisher comics,
2: it's resolved with
0: guns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's resolved with guns or it's just resolved in a way that absolutely does not ring true and is overly simplistic. And it just sounds like it is a white man who doesn't really comprehend the community around him, you know, like the, yeah, whatever, like other ethnic groups or social ills that he's writing about, uh, to form kind of the themes of the issue or the story he's writing. It just seems like he saw like, a three-minute segment on his local news and he decided that was all he needed in order to write a story about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, if anything, I'd say that that era of The Punisher was very much in line with the kind bad, of movie he Bad heroes. 80s action Yeah, movies. exactly. With the kind of bad 80s action movies that you saw for that time period, right? Yeah. So that Punisher was very much in line with Sylvester Stallone or, or Schwarzenegger or Chuck Norris, or whoever was was a gun-toting badass for their time, right? And mm-hmm. and it has just about the same amount of nuance. So I'm pretty confident in saying that the later, like, the more modern-era Punisher is definitely the more, yeah. the real Punisher for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd even take, well, no, I don't know if I believe that but i was gonna say what were we about to say i'd even take the jason aaron samurai demon skull shirt over (laughs) those 80s punishers but i don't know that i eh. no actually i think i would i I think what jason aaron does even if he doesn't look like the punisher that i enjoy i'd still say that those are probably still better comics
0: what about that Pre-Garth Ennis Punisher, where he was an angel who had,
2: like, Hellfire pistols or something. I think, to be honest, I think that was the cutoff point for Punisher comics. Like, I could honestly say that that was the bottom of the barrel for them. Because up to Mm -hmm. that point, everything before that was 80s Action Star Punisher. And then, you know, once that started losing steam... That was the period in time where they were like, okay, we have to reinvent the Punisher as an angel of death. So we're gonna bring him back with, you know, magic spirit guns as a, as a warrior <laughs> for heaven or whatever, right? Uh
1: huh. That
2: was that was the point where they just ran out of ideas, and that was the very last idea that they could pick. And <laughs> when that didn't work, that was when Garth Ennis came back, took him back to his roots, and and he did the Punisher right. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So you know, it's 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 almost like there's a everything before that Punisher I'm confident I can say was bad or not good. (laughs) And then everything (laughs) after that Punisher is probably the era in which I would consider that to be the real punisher. At least for me.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well what about this? What would what is worse or what what would you rather read? Would you rather read the Angel of Death Punisher or the Punisher story where he turns into a black man and teams up with Luke Cage? Ooh.
2: Ooh. Uh, I think I would rather read the Punisher as an Angel of Death (laughs) because that's just the one that's least likely to get me in trouble. (laughs) You can't, you can't enjoy this. He's putting on angel face. That's insulting. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, it is a
0: pretty face. blasphemous
2: story. <laughs> that Yeah, that's true. But I guess you could look at it as a generic concept of heaven as opposed to the literal religious heaven, you know? <laughs> Can you, though? Uh, I mean, they didn't have him quoting Bible verses as he was, like, <laughs> killing people, was he? <laughs> well, Was he like
0: like all of his bullets were engraved with Frank Castle
2: 316? No, no. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, geez.
0: No thanks. No thanks. (laughs) Now the nom is something that I would want to read if I ever found like a nice collection of it or something. I'm
2: kind of surprised that they never, they yeah. they haven't made an omnibus of it or anything
0: like that. Yeah, I'm not sure what the problem is. Like, I don't know if there's some kind of rights issue or something, but the various times I've found issues of the NOM and quarter bins, like, I've always picked them up. And maybe I don't really remember a specific story off the top of my head, but I feel like they've been pretty interesting comics. And I've just yeah. never been able to, like, read them from the beginning in any sort of coherent order. I've only been able to find random issues, and the series was so long. I'm not going to try to track down every single one. How many issues was it? I'm not exactly sure. It, I felt like it must have been, like, 60 or something at least. Because I know, like, it started in the 80s and it ended at some point in the 90s. Because I think the last few issues of the Nam when they were struggling to make sales... They yeah, had the Punisher Star. I remember
2: that, where they were telling, like, Punisher stories in his pre-Punisher days. Yeah, yeah. Which is... I mean, I think it's an interesting idea to tell stories about Frank Castle in Vietnam. But I just think it it's weird when you're telling... When you're writing a series about Nam, about the Nam, about the Vietnam War, and then you... Inject this character in, right? That was desperation. Yeah, exactly. People to pick up the comic. You might as well find a way to put Spider Man in there or Wolverine.
0: (laughs) Hey, one of the early issues of Transformers
2: had Spider Man guest star. But the Transformers, man, you shouldn't need Spider Man to guest star for Transformers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, I guess what I was saying was like I don't mind telling a Punisher Punisher story that takes place in Vietnam but i do mind a vietnam war story where the punisher is the focal point of it where where you bring in the punisher to the vietnam comic the nam comic especially when that
0: comic had been going on for so long without him
2: yeah it it just detracts from the integrity of it yeah all right you ready to move on to issue 24
0: yeah i think that was a big enough tangent
2: what'd you have for lunch today drew (laughs) all right the student council meet to discuss business but fractures are beginning to show shabnam steers the group towards the elimination of his one rival saya petra doesn't have the stomach for any more violence and but grogda suggests that Stefan and petra be the ones for the job when Victor lashes out with indignation, he's absolute. He's obviously the best suited for the task and insists on doing the deed. After everyone leaves, Grogda and Shabnam reveal that their whole act was meant to manipulate Victor into taking the lead on killing Saya. In the hallway, Victor and Stefan discuss their plans, and we discover that they were fully aware of Grogda and Shabnam's attempt at manipulation. They were just playing long and biding their time until their own plans could come to fruition. Helmut, seeing Victor, took an instant disliking to the young KGB in training and tripped him. The two almost get into it right there, but Saya breaks it up. The shots have been fired. We then start following Zenzel and read some of her journal entries, getting a chance to see the school through her eyes. She seems different than the rest of the students at King's Dominion. She's aware of her surroundings and what is expected of her, but deep down, she wants to have connections and friendships. There's an air of mystery that surrounds her as no one knows her backstory or why she's even at the school. Quan, Helmet, and Zenzel sneak out for Halloween. Zenzel is concerned about Saya finding out and doesn't want to get in trouble. The three end up not inviting her. Toshawi tries to tag along, but they end up ditching him because of his negative demeanor. As the three go out, they joke and ruminate on life. Helmut tells a story about an incident when, believing he was alone, he rips a big fat wet fart in an elevator only to have Saya rush out. A few minutes later, she had been spying on him from the shadows and received a nostril full. Saya comes upon the three in a bar and tries to take them back to King's, Domin- to King's Dominion. They're, they're in a very dangerous place. Suddenly, they are surrounded. Saya's brother has found her, and they have come to take her back, and they will kill anyone who gets in their way. Yep. This
0: was a great issue, man. I liked this one quite a bit. There was a lot of... There's a story. lot to like. Yeah, there's a lot to like in it. There's a lot going on in it. It just builds up the characters as we've been getting to know them and puts them into these scenes and situations that kind of humanize them. They all get some great moments here. Where do I start, man? I guess I'll just start at the opening scene where you were describing the student council meeting and the power struggles being played amongst Shabnam and his cronies. Like that whole sequence was pretty fun from the start of the sequence up to the point where S- Steven and Victor are walking in the hallway talking about how they were just playing along with everything. Cause they're the ones who think that they can outsmart the people who think they're outsmarting them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things, man. It's like, When you play this Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. There is no middle ground. (laughs) Exactly.
2: It's hard to tell stories where you're having all these different balls in the air because you're trying to make a a compelling story where all the various sides are plotting against one another, and it's like a house of cards where if, as a writer, you're very clumsy about it, it doesn't come off as convincing, right? So it's really about the details and flushing out the story so that you believe that all the various sides have their own motivations, have their own plans. And they're all equally as clever as each other and capable of executing their plans in a way that when the final collision does happen, it just feels like a master stroke. Mm. Because if if that if if the way that the different sides are planning their schemes out isn't convincing, then it's just a terrible read, right? It's it yeah. just it just doesn't do anything for you as a reader. So I I do think it's a testament to Rick Remender's talent to be able to build these into these characters and make us believe. Oh, okay, they're they're all playing three-dimensional chess and they're playing with worthy opponents yep yep yeah and because even even though they're it it feels like the primary plots here are Shabnam and grogda versus uh Victor and Stefan like there are plots within plots because we even see again the idea that grogda is just manipulating Shabnam and It makes you just wonder, like, how long is she going to ride with him until she inevitably has her own plan? Because she's clearly showing an aptitude for schemery here, and if Mm -hmm. she's able to work with Shabnam to develop this scheme, who's to say that she isn't working on her own schemes behind the scenes, right? Right. And... We have to like, assume that she is exactly, and likewise we also see we saw from the previous issue Stefan was able he he has enough cunning where he is willing to mess with Shabnam, right he was willing to spike that drink to mess with Shabnam just just as a power play, really yeah, purely right? spite yeah, so he he definitely has the acuity for this sort of play and for him to team up with victor someone who for all intents and purposes they shouldn't have anything in common if anything they should hate each other but they understand that they are allies of convenience for their own personal needs and they form this tenuous alliance with one another for the time being and that just sets it up in your mind where you're just like, oh, how long is that going to last?
0: Yeah, exactly. There's some pretty subtle art that I didn't really notice until just now as I'm reading it on the digital version and just zooming in on some of the panels. But that opening scene when uh, when Shabnam wants to assign the role to to Petra and she says I don't want to do this maybe Victor could help Stefan and then the next panel Victor stands up and he slams the table with violence and he's like help Victor does not need Homo to help him kill girl and you know he just makes this whole scene right uh, and then he says Victor will kill Saya is no problem No one will know I did it, but when I am done, no more fat boy holding all the cookies, and he just storms out, and then the meeting's adjourned. But that panel where he storms out, if you zoom in, it actually looks like Stephen or Stefan is smirking. (laughs) Like, he's not taking that insult seriously, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And yeah, once they go outside and they're walking in the hallways like the the two of them are talking pretty frankly with one another and it doesn't feel like there's any animus there there's an understanding that there's play going on here there's mm-hmm. there's theatrics involved so mm-hmm. again they are siding up with each other because they are allies of convenience
0: yeah and there's a a page in between uh, the end of the meeting and Victor and Stefan walking in the hallway. And I wanted to just talk a, a little bit about that page too, because it's about Saya and Petra in, I guess it's their poison class mm-hmm. and the lecturer or the teacher is talking about how uh, basically he he's, he calls Petra up to them, go up in front of the class to describe the kill Right, and as you were mentioning earlier, Petra, since we've seen her in this volume, she's been kind of odd. Right, like her, there's something going on emotionally with her that we're not completely privy to, but it's clear that the stuff that she did in the previous volume has affected her in a negative manner, and she's just got anxiety or just mental troubles that she's dealing with so when she gets called up to the front of the class like the way the page is laid out is i don't know there's just something about it that i find immaculate because she really doesn't want to talk about what she did but then the teacher calls her up and then she says oh uh okay you know like she stutters a bit and then you get this one horizontal panel in the middle of the page where she's walking up to the front of the class. But just from the way that the panel is laid out, like this long horizontal shot where she's clearly taking these really sh- small steps and she looks uncertain based on her body language. And it just looks like the teacher and everybody else is, everybody's just waiting for her to get to the front of the class. like. It almost feels like she's walking the plank or something, and that horizontal panel just enhances that unsteady emotional feeling.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And and then when she finally gets to the front of the class and starts talking, like again, her body language, the way that she just has her arm, uh, you know, kind of holding on to her other arm or her hand holding on to her other arm. She looks she, really meek. She looks really meek. She's not making eye contact or looking up at the class. And she kind of stumbles over her words a bit. She talks and she says, we we were on the run together, me and uh, the rat. Once we were alone, I set a bomb inside the room with the rat and locked him in. He screamed and he begged until the poison liquefied his lungs and he began to suffocate in his blood. I went in, pulled him into the hallway as he died. And I watched the life leaving his eyes. And it it's a statement that I feel is meant to convey uh, with certainty that Billy is dead. And I think out of all the characters who died in the previous volume, Billy was the one that I felt like he really was dead, you know? Because I, I think we saw the life go out of his body. Like, if he were to come back, I would be...
2: Pretty surprised. <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, there's no chance that he, he had, like, a extra plastic bag that he hid in there uh, so that she could, you know, soak up all the, the poison air and therefore save the clean air for him to breathe? <laughs> there is a possibility of that.
0: Anything yeah. is possible. Yeah, yeah. Anything is possible, but... I guess I'm just saying that if, if I were a betting man and I had to bet which one of the characters who died in Volume 4 is actually dead, my money would be on him.
1: Mm. Mm. Okay.
0: But, you know, we didn't actually see them bury the body or anything. So, for all I know, he just had, a you know, your run-of-the-mill seizure and he's out there somewhere living his life after recovering making a full
2: recovery (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i just have to say that in a series like this where it really does feel like life for the characters coming to an end is very much a possibility like on the occasion where you're going to misdirect us the uh, misdirect the reader to believe uh that someone died only to bring them back. It 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 better be done in a masterful enough way that it just doesn't you know make you go, oh, man, what a what a way to get out of that, right?
0: Yeah, so you think that yeah. she actually gave him a plastic bag?
2: I, I don't real- know. I'm just saying <laughs> like if this was X-Men, I'd be more inclined to say, oh, yeah, th- he probably didn't die. You know, maybe Magneto sucked all the poison out of him with his magnets or something like that, right? But <laughs> Is that how his powers work? Probably not, but, you know, if you find a dumb enough writer, I'm sure they could find a way to make something like that happen. All right, all right. He used the iron ore in someone's blood to capture all the molecules of poison. And when he removed that iron from the dude's body, the poison went with it. See? Dude, you could
0: have been a biologist.
2: Oh, man. I thought you were going to say I could have been a comic book writer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you still can be. Yeah, I could. But I'm, I'm probably more likely to have interest in becoming a comic book writer than a biologist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What else did you want to talk about? It felt like you had quite a few scenes in this issue that were Mm -hmm. really just, you know, juicing you up, boy.
0: Yeah, man. I like the scene in the hallway when Victor, or when Helmut trips Victor, and they have a little confrontation there. I think that's the scene that made me love him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that... That panel where Victor is falling, it's such a great drawing where his eyes are yeah. just totally bugging out, the papers are flying out of his hands and yeah, he's just in motion and there's just no stopping it. It's a great
2: drawing, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh Victor is walking down the hall and they're talking about their plans and how they're going to what they what he and Stephen intend to do to Shabnam and Tasio, you know, just working out all their details, right? And Helmet just sees him walking down the block. He instantly his eyes just get squinty. He knows he doesn't like this dude. And yeah. it's funny cuz in another universe they'd they they almost look like they'd be alternate reality versions of one another, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But he comes down the hall and Helmet just trips him and the indignance on his face as he's looking up at Helmut, and he's just like, this freshman? Who does he
1: think he is?
0: (laughs) It's the KGB against East Germany in King's Dominion.
2: (laughs) yeah. And, like, you know, uh, Victor is over here, and he's just all angry and with bluster, and uh, Helmut's just smiling at him, just this young freshman kid with the audacity to... To take out a sophomore.
1: Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's a fun scene. I enjoyed it quite a
0: bit. Totally, totally. The other stuff that I really like in this issue is the character bits here, especially with Zenzel. We get a pretty extended sequence where she's writing a letter to her family, and it kind of sums up the various experiences and travails that she's been facing at King's Dominion since she started. And it kind of gives the sense that she feels like a fish out of water. Like she's not nearly as cold hearted as many of her other fellow students. Like even when it comes to killing a a pig just to get used to, you know, taking a life in one of her labs, like she struggled to do that. It doesn't seem like she's very good at fighting. People don't really, uh, she doesn't really fit in with other people other than, Quan and Helmut. So there's just something about that whole sequence, I think, that makes her feel more empathetic, which builds up to the next issue when we see uh, what ends up happening when they get into a fight. hmm
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Then, the, yeah.
2: Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just gonna say there. She is a pretty interesting character because she's almost this blank slate. We don't really know too much about her, and the students at the school seem to know just as little, right? Because there's <laughs> there's quite a few scenes where people are just kind of they're 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 whispering about her and they they have there's these rumors where they assume that oh, she's from Africa, so maybe her parents are some sort of bigwig warlord or something like that who sent her here and she even talks about that in her journal entry where you know the ignorance of the people at the school just uh, of Africa just shows up in abundance when they when the only thing that they can talk about about Africa is oh yeah warlords so yeah right you know yeah. so yeah that that's really it just adds more to the to her mystique because in the back of my mind I'm like, "Oh, did she did she like find a way to trick her way into the school? Is that why she's there? Is she just trying to learn to be, you know, an assassin or like yeah, there's a part of me that wonders if if like her backstory is just going to be a subversion of of this expectation that oh, she comes from this background where like the vilest most uh cutthroat Criminals or murderers from her country are who sent are who sent her here. You know.
0: Yeah, and on top of that, uh, she's got this religious element to her as well. And she talks about God a lot and wears a cross. So it it really doesn't feel like she fits in with these characters. Or at the at the least, she's clearly a misfit character. It all just adds up to how unusual and different she is to the other cast members. I'd say. Mm-hmm. And then we get the scene where Senzel, Helmut, and Kwan are about to go to this party, and we get kind of this deja vu uh, with with uh, them ditching Tasawi because he kind of wants to go to the party, and then. turns around, and then next thing he knows, they've ditched him. Yeah. And it just kind of reminds you of Marcus and Shabnam earlier on in the series. But the great thing here is when they're walking through the city to go to this party, and they come across this empty gin bottle (laughs) that's planted on a pile of human feces. Yeah. Quan inspects it, and he concocts this pretty funny imaginary narrative about it that i i thought was pretty amusing
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: like okay i'll just read the excerpt because it made me laugh when i read it but he's he's inspecting this empty gin bottle planted on top of a heaping stack of human feces and he says some might see this as just a gin bottle stuck in poo But I see the fearless art of a genius. (laughs) A purely uninhibited soul, unburdened by the idea of shame. Walking drunk down the street, our protagonist realizes he needs to relieve himself. So he just does on the street, in public, joyfully unshackled from the imaginary (laughs) dictates of human society. A shadow hero finding wild fun in the most mundane tasks while the rest of us fret away every hour. Rich in ways we will never understand. A truly great American.
1: (laughs) 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 Man,
2: that's
0: just... It's fun. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. And yeah, we just see this image of a, a hobo crouching down and doing all that stuff as Quan described it. It made me laugh, man. It definitely reeks of genuine San Franciscan experience. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly how gross our streets were back in 1988, but definitely when this comic was coming out back around like 2016, that was, was very a true accurate. sentiment. <laughs> yeah, that was that yeah. was real, man. Yeah. Because yeah, you and me, we know we we you know we go down town and and we've seen stuff like this all the time so yeah Yeah. it's it's gross like i I do wonder like how people who don't live in san francisco if they see the news about how san francisco has become this cesspool and you know they read these stories about homeless people taking over and uh, just doing their business out on the streets and stuff like that like it must sound like a big shock but in some ways i feel like That's just kind of how the city's always been. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it
2: strengthened my resolve to a lot of things. So. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I remember at my old job, I was working in this alleyway. Our office was in an alleyway right off 6th Street. And I've seen stuff, man. Like I've seen homeless person, someone with like some kind of issues, right? Like just, strip off all his clothes in the middle of the street and this was when i was just walking home from work and it wasn't even that dark yet you know like yeah broad daylight basically and he he just stripped off all his clothes walked around naked in the street and then just started pooping in the middle of uh, the sidewalk (laughs) and man i i was like i just crossed the street when i saw him dude i was like i'm not gonna get near him I'm not going to like stare at him, you know, I'm just going to like mind my own business and keep on going. But I mean, it wasn't my plan to stare at him to begin with, but <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't help but look at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cuz it's like, wow. You don't see that every day, and on some level it is shocking, but on another level, it's kind of to be
2: expected. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I I did want to point out one one scene back to to Zenzel reading her journal mm-hmm. and it's it's a minor scene but I do think it's something that is indicative of her character right and what makes her different than most of the kids that we've seen here at King's Dominion up to this point mm-hmm. so she's writing her letter to her parents and she says ps well I was once again too quick to assume the the world would disappoint me. Those kids I mentioned before, they just invited me out for Halloween. They consider me part of their crew. I am making friends after all. Right? And Mm -hmm. I think prior to that, yeah, she she even acknowledges that she doesn't – she acknowledges the peculiarity of making friends at a school for assassins. Right? She's fully aware of the conditions of her surroundings and what's expected of her. And in this moment where she talks about how Quan and Helmet have invited her to go out, there's she's got this little smile on her face and it's it's a moment of I guess sweetness that we have not seen in this book at all up to this point. It's, it's, you know, for someone who's trying to be an assassin, it's probably the nicest that we're going to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I just wanted to add that on to what you were saying uh, in earlier in the conversation when we were just talking about what it is about Zinzel that makes her so different. Yeah. Kind of feels like... They're
0: setting us up to feel more empathy or sympathy for her, only to eventually cruelly take her away.
2: Yeah. I was going to say it's more, uh, 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 what's it called? Tragic? No, not tragic, but more uh, uh, what we were saying earlier. Misdirection. It's more misdirection. Yeah. Yeah. Crusty digitation. Yes. Crusty digitation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Crusty. <laughs> <laughs> i I also want to talk about their Halloween costumes a little. It did make me chuckle that helmet's out there with a thor wing wing hat
0: <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. yeah, Zenzel is an angel, and Quan
2: is a devil, yeah, and then later on, when they get surrounded by the ninjas the thing is all the ninjas are in halloween costumes so yeah, you got yeah. a michael jackson thriller a zombie you got a superman you got a he-man and a she-ra in there mr t
0: robocop
2: yeah <laughs> it's a it's pretty funny you know I see a wolverine they're, in there <laughs> they're they're ninjas they're ninjas that are attacking them but they they decided to stick to character, you know? They, yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't want to show up as ninjas because that would be too obvious, so they all dressed up in costumes and showed up to attack these kids. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah.
0: Man, that story that Helmut tells about farting in the elevator
2: is pretty hilarious, too. The thing I liked about it was... I mean, it's a funny story, but it's it takes a couple of pages, and he uses quite a few panels, so he really... When Remender was telling the story, it, it feels like he knows how to tell a joke, right? So he yeah. really built it up and really milked that setup so that when the punchline hits, it is like so satisfying,
1: as it
0: satisfying is, as
2: his fart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the
0: artwork is great too with all the the way that the gases, all the flatulence is depicted as this cloud of gas. Yeah. The colors are, you know, because it's a flashback of sorts. The colors are a little different. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. to see that they spent like more than three pages on what's essentially just a joke. Yeah, but well, that's the I best kind stuff of like joke. That.
2: It's the best kind of joke is where you mm-hmm. build it up and really like yank that crank so that when you get there, it's just such a perfect payoff. Because the way that the joke is told, he starts out talking about how. I don't think Saya likes me, and you don't really know why, and as he's telling the story, you kind of lose that thread for for a second, yeah. because yeah. you don't really know what any of this has to do with Saya. It starts out with him talking about how, oh, I get really homesick sometimes, so I eat sauerkraut from home, because, you know, that gives me comfort. But as I was sitting in class, I began to feel, you know, pain in my stomach, and then I had to go do this and that, and it's it's really the perfect craft of storytelling is really just adding all these details to to make this story that much more epic, right? Speaking then, of details, it was Bratwurst. Oh, Bratwurst, sorry. Not yeah. sauerkraut. So you know, he goes through all this, he goes through this epic adventure just to look for a moment where he can unleash his fart in in privacy and with the belief that there's no one around him that's going to judge him or, you know, fall victim to it. So, he's he's waiting, and then when he can't do it anymore, he thinks he's in the elevator completely by himself. And he decides, okay, I think this is as good a time as any. And he just lays it out. And you get to the end of the page, and he's sitting in the elevator by himself, and he thinks he's, like, free and clear. And he, see, he hears... A random noise in this elevator. And he's just like, what was that? But, oh no, it's not a random noise. The elevator suddenly stops on the second floor, randomly. And he's just like, huh, when did that happen? What's going on, right? And then on the... What is that? The the fourth page of the story, right at the very top. You just see the elevator open and you just see Saya run out.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and she's just like, Jesus Christ. And then... I think that's cool that that it just, the punchline is literally just that one little panel at the top of the page and then it jumps back to normal like yeah yeah what a it, it's such a clever way to tell uh a joke in uh to tell a joke visually you know yeah and the whole story the whole conversation
0: that the three of them are having on uh, the surface again it just seems like a throwaway joke but i do feel like scenes like this add a lot of character to the people that we're reading about you know like they a little scene like this is a conversation that three people actually would have when they're hanging out at a party just swapping stories or you know being willing to tell tales where they don't actually sound like heroes you know like it's it's not the most dignified thing for someone to just tell a story like that but it's funny and that's what makes it great and everybody else has a big laugh out of it and they just Mm -hmm. have a good time yeah so even though we've only been with these characters for a few issues by the time we get to the end of this one and they're surrounded by all these enemies you kind of already have this feeling that they're bonded together, you know, like they're not just there together because of happenstance. They're there because they wanted to go there with each other. Mm, mm,
1: mm.
2: Yeah. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good single issue to just, again, solidify the bonds of these characters. Yeah. And, and helmet telling that story is just another thing that just makes you love him that much more. Yeah. Um, You know, yeah. It's just that funny. Yeah. Compared to like when you meet him in that first issue and he's just kind of this humorless, gruff East German kid. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He starts off as this kind of blank slate, or maybe I guess I I think I pigeonholed him early on as a poor man's victor. Yeah. And he's definitely got a way more fun. Type of demeanor and character than victor exactly exactly all the little details that we're learning about kwan zenzel and Helmut. all those things just go a long way into shaping them and making them feel more rich making yeah. them feel like this w- it just makes the story overall feel more thoughtful and developed like the people yeah. the characters that inhabit the world are real people with their own personalities and distinctive character traits. They don't really feel like they're just stereotypes that check off different boxes to you know, meet all the various tropes that you'd expect in a story. It truly feels like the creators have done as much as they could to inject as much uniqueness to these characters.
2: Right, right. I was going to say, now that I think about it, i I don't think all the characters out of all the characters we've met up to this point, I think I might even go so far as to say helmet is the one that I might genuinely like out of all of them, okay, okay, you know I mean, I think the characters that you meet that you met in the freshman year they're compelling characters, but I don't know if any of them were necessarily likable. Right? Like even Marcus, he's mm-hmm. he's the main character, but yeah. That kid had a lot of problems in that first year. And yeah, I wouldn't want to be his friend. Exactly, exactly. Whereas and and the same goes for most of the kids in their little group. Um Willie and Billy and uh you know, Saya or Maria, like they I I accept them as part of the story. But I don't think that as people they were they were people that I found likable in any real way, right? Right. It's just they work as as part of the story, and that's just about it. Whereas Helmet, yeah, I I think he he could be actually fun to be around.
0: <laughs> At the very least, he could teach us how to play Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's too hard to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's it's the minor details that I don't really get about it is the uh, you know, like the different stats with what, what they are and like how to develop them and yeah, it's also pretty time consuming. It is. It is.
0: Have you ever played a game of Dungeons and Dragons? No, but I have tried playing other pen and paper RPGs. Granted. I was a lot younger back then, so there's a highly good chance that we weren't playing them correctly
1: <laughs> but, <laughs>
0: but uh I don't know. I think I always just enjoyed the imaginative the imagination of it all. you know
2: the, the I prefer the the use of the word imaginative <laughs> <laughs> heck, I prefer that pronunciation of it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I just enjoyed spending time creating a character. I think, I feel like most of the time when I, I tried playing those kind of games with friends, we would just spend all our time creating our characters and then never actually play the actual game.
2: <laughs> See, that's the thing I wonder. Like, so it sounds like it takes a while to create your character?
0: I guess it depends how experienced you are and how particular you are about creating or customizing your everything about your character. Like I'm pretty sure experienced players don't spend that much time doing that. Right. Right. But if you don't really know what you're doing and it's your first time, then yeah, you're probably going to spend a lot of time reading up to learn what your various options are and then trying to decide what you want to do with it
2: right right. like it
0: kind of reminds me a little bit about that one time when zach came over and tried to play mass effect he probably spent like two hours customizing his character (laughs) and then like five
2: minutes playing yeah oh man that's funny Any other scenes or moments or observations? Nope, I think we've talked about this issue in
0: overly great detail because there was a lot in it and I th- I think it might have been my favorite issue of this trade just for nice. all the the entertaining stories within and it works really well as a build up to what is this uh next issue issue 25?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that being said, that I think it's time we delve into issue twenty-five. Let's go. Did the class issue twenty-five? The kids scatter. Helmet makes a stand while Kwan makes a break for it. Outside, Saya fights for her life and for Zenzel. She urges Zenzel to run and save herself while she takes on two high-level enforcers, the Kamigawa brothers. Kamiga brothers. As Helmet begins to tire and he begins to accept his fate, he is saved by Kwan, who comes in on a motorcycle, and the two take take to the rooftops. Saya makes a valiant effort against the Kamiga brothers, but it is a losing battle. She makes a run for it with a petrified Zenzel. The brothers The brothers kill an innocent bystander to steal his car. This act sets Zenzel off and she unleashes a vicious attack beating the two brothers mercilessly and revealing a terrifying side of her personality. Kwan and Helmet are cornered by ninjas when Saya and Zenzel drop down from above, giving the quartet a chance to run. As they leap across the rooftops, Kwan misses a ledge and falls. Saya goes back to save him, only to be stabbed repeatedly in her gut. Kwan has made a deal with Kenji, and he has just fulfilled his end of it. Yeah, this is
0: another great ending. It's another twist and a shock. It's pretty much what you want when you want to do a cliffhanger. And it's not because someone, you know, falls off a building, even though that's what happens here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it's because you're just surprised by the various revelations that you've just read and you want to find out what happens next. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: That's what makes it. A great cliffhanger.
2: Yeah. And, yeah, this is the moment where Helmut definitely overtakes Kwan as a character I like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: The issue is all-out action, and it starts off with Kwan running, seeming to be a cowardly type. Uh And then we get this whole extended sequence with Helmut doing a bunch of damage with his axe. I'm not even sure like, how he managed to just walk around the entire city carrying his axe all night, but I guess it was Halloween. It's Halloween, so maybe, man. Maybe people thought it was <laughs> fake, yeah. Exactly. There's, there's some pretty dynamic action in the issue. The panel layouts are pretty invigorating. They're exciting. Just like the way that, he, that Wes Craig uses these sort of uh, angled or diagonal-style panels... Is pretty fun to look at, and it makes the action feel really frenetic. The way that even some of the fighting, uh, not just specifically with the helmet scenes, but with the scenes of Saya and Zenzel fighting the two brothers, like some of the, those panels are just like cut off at the edge of the page. They go off the bleed. It's pretty interesting. Just makes the whole thing feel really uh intense like everything's just happening so fast and yeah just the page design is always fun to look at because he really isn't afraid to use a lot of white space
1: yeah yeah
2: i like the scene where towards the end of the battle with the ninjas helmet is just swinging his axe and I just like the the dialogue and the text in that scene where he goes, it reads, in a nearby alleyway, the Kuroki syndicate mistakes helmet for easy prey. The last mistake many will ever make. They surround him playing into his hand, allowing him to windmill his mighty axe, cleaving his way through. (laughs) And then he just goes, Krom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we fought or why we died. All that matters is that I stood against many.
0: (laughs) The Conan reference.
2: That's what's important. Valor pleases you, Krom. So grant me one request. (laughs) Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just this is like he's giving this epic Conan speech and it's just I love this dude man.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, just eat it up, man. Yeah, that
0: was pretty fun. Really fun. Yeah. There's a funny little detail where when he kills a ninja, you see a a word balloon come out of the dude's mouth and it's just a skull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that totally feels like an Usagi Yojimbo. Thing, because that's the sort of thing I feel like I've seen
2: Stan Sakai do quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I will say that the scene where Kwan comes out and you know he saves him on that little motorcycle crashes into them, pulls out his little switch blades and like mm-hmm. starts stabbing all these dudes. I mean, that was a scene that for for the time it made me go, yeah, way to go, guy. And then when they reveal what he's all about, it's like, oh man. <laughs> It's like, dang it, the Asian guy had to be the traitor. He was a treacherous yellow menace. (laughs) (laughs) You can't trust us Asians, man. You can't. I'm going to betray you. (laughs) That's why whenever I go to lunch with Drew, I never turn my back towards him. (laughs) (laughs) I can't
0: trust him. (laughs) He's got to make sure that... He keeps me in full view at all times.
1: Sees exactly. my hands.
0: Knows that exactly. I don't have anything up my sleeve that can hurt
2: him. Drew is never allowed to go to the bathroom when we are in the same place together. <laughs> <laughs> I have to know where he is at all times in case he ever decides to betray me. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, and then there's the whole thing with Zinzel. So she just seems... When Saya is like fighting for her life, she's actually going through a lot because she's really re-experiencing all of the emotional baggage that she carries with her from everything that happened with Marcus, right? Yeah. So she's telling herself, "I'm never gonna lose another pledge again. I'm never gonna let you know let anyone down like that again." And you see, Zenzel is just clinging to this light pole, shivering, and it really seems like this moment where saya is the last line of defense between their living and dying because what other choice is going to happen right mm-hmm. because it seems like zenzel's not going to fight and if Saya's the only one with any will to fight but she's just outgunned in this situation there there aren't really a lot of options but then when the two brothers the kamiga brothers kill this one innocent like, that just snaps Zenzel out of it. She, uh, She's looking at that in terror, and she goes, "Saya, that man! And they, like, just break his neck. With one hand. With one hand and climb into his car. And the next thing you see, a hand smashes through this window with a mallet. And she just... It's just her shouting, Fuck you! I'll fucking erase you! <laughs> just losing it. And she goes... Burn all you love. Keep feed on your hope. I will fuck your soul, you know? (laughs) And she's just mashing them with these these helmets. Like, I don't know if they're dead, but I assume that they are. I'm pretty sure they're dead. (laughs) And, like, after her rampage, she just goes, I told you before, I don't need your help. And Saya is just... Looking at her in this one panel, just she's shocked. She is totally stunned, silent. She yeah. did not expect that. Yeah, yeah. Like,
0: those Say guys I'm, were were giving Saya the fight of her life, and it was questionable whether she could even survive against them. And then <laughs> Zenzel just messes them up in like a really brief moment, basically. Yeah, she goes one quick attack, on them. kills one brother, and then the other brother tries to grab her, and she just
2: turns his brain into bits with her mallet. Yeah. She just goes berserk on these guys and, you know, with everything that we told you in the previous issues, everything about how she seems like this real gentle soul, she seems like she's a decently good person for someone who's going to a school for assassins. I feel like we're constantly qualifying that, but that <laughs> yeah. is, but that is the case, right? And then it at at one point you even wonder why is she even there at all like how does she fit into this place and then when she unleashes this that's the moment where you see it where you're like ah okay i get it
0: yeah she's not a regular teenage girl no no not at all there's something
2: scary there
1: mm-hmm. yep.
0: something scary enough to freak out saya
1: yeah The ending scene where we finally learn that
0: Kwan betrayed the group, and he stabbed Saya a couple times before throwing her off a building through a skylight and into a swimming pool. Uh Like number one, that's a pretty great twist, a great way to end the the issue on this massive cliffhanger. Like again, it's one of those things where, realistically, I feel like. She should be dead. But unless we get real visual confirmation, I'm still going to assume that she survives all this.
1: Yeah,
2: I think I was more inclined to assume that she survived if only because they wanted to bring her back. Like, that seemed to be their whole MO. So Yeah,
0: yeah. her brother said that they wanted her sword and he wanted to bring her back home.
2: Yeah, so I'm so. inclined to believe that she probably survived. Yeah, it just kind of feels
0: like In real life, if you got stabbed like that and then fell off a building, you'd probably die.
2: Well, how about this? Since Rick Remender is so great at misdirection, what if in the next issue or the next volume, it turns out she actually did die? (laughs) That would be quite the heck of a surprise, man. (laughs) It's like, I've been tricking you with people who died who you thought were dead and turned out to be alive this whole time. I'm gonna go the other way this time. Yeah. I'll be like, dang, dude. Rick or Reminder better yet be playing three dimensional like <laughs> four dimensional chess, man. Yeah. We're gonna see her in a couple of issues and then turns out, oh, she's been dead for like five issues actually. Yeah. <laughs> Those were all just memories or after images of her <laughs> You did it to me again, Reminder <laughs> You F Night Cheveland me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay,
0: okay, here's a question. But what part of San Francisco do you think this fight happens in?
2: Oh, I have no idea. It's not recognizable to me at all. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out, man. Like I was trying to figure out where is there where there are buildings
0: that tall where someone can get kicked off. I don't know if it's necessarily it's not really a skyscraper, but it's like a tall building and get kicked off that tall building and land into another building that has a skylight which has a swimming pool in it like i I have no idea where this I could mean, be happening.
2: There are places like that here. it's just we're we've never been invited to a place like that. we're not you know
1: <laughs> we're too <laughs> low
2: class we're too low class exactly yeah, you know? yeah I've never been to a Like, there are definitely a bunch of, like, skyscrapers in the city, but I've never actually been inside any of them.
0: Yeah, that's true. We're, like, not even sure if we count as middle class. (laughs) Really? Dang. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if we monetize our podcast. (laughs) You hear
2: that, people? Give us money so that we can no longer be lower class scum. (laughs) I hate being poor. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? Or you good with moving on to the next issue?
0: Let's move on and wrap
2: it up. All right. Deadly Class, issue 26. In Fernley, Nevada, a villa experiences problems with their plumbing. Two masked plumbers arrive to investigate the situation. It quickly becomes apparent that one of them is not what he appears to be. And the plumbing shoes are all part of an elaborate ruse to get on the premises. The masked plumber goes to work dispatching the security forces. Deep within the bowels of the estate, a young woman is being tortured when the plumber frees her. The young woman turns out to be Maria who was thought to be dead. As Amanto Jail, Chico's mother, arrives the stranger gives Maria something special. Amanto Jail begins to make her move. Maria springs forth with her bladed fans slicing Jail to pieces and decapitating her. Maria makes a break for it while El Caballo Amarillo shoots wildly and swears revenge. Maria makes it to a speeding van when the back doors are suddenly kicked open and standing there is Marcus with a bazooka. He fires a single shot, presumably killing Amarillo and blowing up the estate. Maria is stunned to see that Marcus was the mysterious stranger and the two embrace. Yeah, I'm uh, not great with the names, so, you know, forgive me. I tried my best to pronounce them to the best of my ability. But, yeah, I, I thought it was important to be clear who I was talking about.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so this is another issue that was just a lot of high octane action. They don't really tell you what's going on. At the beginning of it, especially juxtaposed against the previous issue, it in that opening scene, you really aren't a hundred percent sure how things are related, and it's not until you find out that Maria is the girl that's being held in this dungeon torture room that you kind of get an inkling, oh shoot okay we've we've jumped to a different section of the story, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, and, and the the really big beats are the revelation that Maria's alive and that Marcus is alive. So, mm-hmm. there we go. Uh we wondered and now we can confirm that two previously thought characters who were dead are in fact actually alive. With Maria, I definitely felt like there was a higher likelihood or a possibility that she was alive, even though everybody was talking about how she was dead. And the last thing we see of her is her foaming at the mouth and unconscious. But I think even yeah, as I, I think, read that... And I think uh, Chico's
0: family's people, like they do grab her and pick her up and take her away. Yeah, exactly. After she passes out from the poison.
2: Yeah, so there was definitely a part of me that thought, okay, I, I think... There's a chance that she's still alive. Like that um, Remender as a writer is building up to something and we will see her again. Yeah. Uh, with Marcus, it was a little harder to believe because, like Saya, he was rammed straight through the gut and chest. Mm-hmm. So I was more inclined to assume that he was dead, dead. But here we are. Um. It does answer one thing for me, though, which... And I could be wrong about this, so I'll, I'll admit it when that, if and when that ever gets revealed, but the last thing that we see between Saya and Marcus is Saya ramming her katana through his torso, and she whispers something into his ear. And in retrospect, I think, I assume that that meant that she told him where Maria was, but,
0: oh. Okay. Okay.
2: I, I don't know. I I could be wrong. Um uh, what did you did did that thought
0: occur to you at all? No. I had forgotten that detail, but now that you mention it, that's what makes the most sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nice, like, man.
2: I, I'd still have to see like what happened in the moments directly after he got stabbed in the chest and and how that played out. I I assume that it's going to, they're going to show it in some sort of flashback, but, like, because I still question how she was able to convince Master Lin and King's Dominion that he was actually dead, right?
0: Maybe she swapped his body out with an evil twin. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Sure, okay, okay. (laughs)
0: Maybe her katana was coated with nanites that immediately sealed his wounds
2: maybe maybe but she still needed to produce a body to to give to Master Lin so that he would know that <laughs> she had done her duty so yeah i don't we'll know how to, that all played out i i think that's the real test for me is i i have to see that part because if it's just something that just makes me go what <laughs> 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 what <laughs> rivender come on <laughs> if that's if it's something that's so preposterous That I'm just like, man, come on, man. You're better than this. You're better than this, son.
0: (laughs) Okay, what if... Would you feel cheated if he did not show a flashback showing what happens in those immediate moments?
2: I think so.
1: Mm, Okay.
2: Because if he gets stabbed through the chest, there has to be some sort of explanation for all that stuff. Like, it's not the sort of thing where... He got better,
0: dude. That's all you need to know.
2: (laughs) This This isn't a philosophical debate or something like that where, okay, how he survives that doesn't matter as long as the discussion and the message at the end of it is something that is so resonant that I can overlook it. Like, this is a plot thing, you know? So <laughs> if if it's so going to be so focused on the plot, it, it has to be something that has to be explained, you know? So if
0: I just tell you that he got better and that's all you need to know you would find that unsatisfactory?
2: It's yeah, I can't. Okay. I okay. can't. Well, Got okay. It. Look, I'm I will accept the explanation that oh, she was able to stab him in the exact way that all of his vital organs were missed. And mm-hmm. and that's how he survived. I'm fine with that, right? Okay. But it's it's the other stuff that I need where the the stuff about how does he – how does she cover up his death so that she can go back to uh, kingdom, King's, King's dominion. dominion without getting killed? Because the last time we see their interaction with each other, Master Lin essentially tells her, Marcus being your pledge, he is your responsibility, and if you do not kill him, I will kill you, and I will kill everyone that you care about, right?
1: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: So, so she needs to do something to prove to him that she's done what she needs to do, and and that's the thing that needs to be believable for me.
0: Okay, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. I'm with you yeah. on that.
2: Like, I'm not... Again, I'm not against it if if the literal explanation for how he survived is that, well, the Blade just missed all of his vital organs. I'm fine with that, right? Like, I, I can... Entertain that as a possibility, but I I need that other stuff, man.
0: Yeah, that would be nice to see. I hope we do get those explanations, cause I would want to know that too. I was just joshing with you, cause I agree with you, man. I would feel <laughs> kind of cheated if all we got was, hey, he got better. What else do you
2: need to know? Yeah, yeah.
0: It feels kind of cheap.
2: In their world, I I can accept that in a world where. You don't have healing factors or a dark phoenix entity to bring you back to life. Uh, If the best that you can do is, well, we just kind of missed all the things that would perma-kill somebody, then I'll take that. I'll take that. (laughs) If that's the best that you can give me, I will take that. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else about this issue that
0: grabbed you? I think I just really like the structure of... The stories being told because it feels like at the end of issue 25 when we see saya falling into the water that's the kind of cliffhanger where if you were reading this on a month-to-month basis you would kind of expect the next issue to pick off to pick up right off where that left off right like you'd expect to see what happens to saya but then we don't get that we get this other side story that seemingly begins with something that appears to be wholly unrelated until we get a few pages in and realize, oh, Maria's still alive.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I feel like that's a big enough of a bombshell that it justifies skipping out on Saya's story. On the current cliffhanger.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's, It's like a jungle gym where if you think about it, you kind of forgot. Well, you didn't realize that the last cliffhanger was Marcus's story, right? Mm -hmm. So you either think that he's dead or if you're astute enough, you're like, okay, what happens to him now, right? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it's just another indicator of just how talented Remender is because he can give you this other story and it doesn't make you go hey, but what about that last thing that happened? Because you're just so engaged, you get caught up in the current story, and then he'll give you another cliffhanger before he feeds you the ending of the previous cliffhanger yeah. that you forgot about. Yeah. Now we're seeing
0: him juggle these multiple plots, and it, unlike a lot of stories where typically you have, like, an A plot and a B plot in the same issue, in this one it kind of feels like we have a whole arc dedicated to an A-plot, and now we have another A-plot, you know? Like, this is two A-plots yeah. going on at the same yeah. time.
2: He's not just giving you B and C-plots just to fill air. It's all A-plot, baby. Yeah, man. That's a
0: pretty fun decision. I don't know how the experience was for people who are reading it on a month-to-month basis, uh, the single issues, uh-huh. but... Reading the trade paperbacks, it's a pretty interesting way to collect the trades because it kind of feels like they could have ended the trade with the previous issue as a really meaningful, impactful cliffhanger, but instead they included this issue. And when you get to the end of this issue, the very last page, it's like, number one, it's just a beautiful page in terms of the artwork and the construction of it, just the the two figures, kind of backlit against this raging fire of the house, and it's like the gone colors. With wind or something. Yeah, yeah, it, it's just epic dialogue, you know. Like she's, she's just amazed that Marcus came back for her, and then uh, they embrace, and then at the end of the, at the bottom of the page, we have the credits reveal and the title, Ballad of Marcus and Maria, a prologue. So right off, or. You know, right at the end here, we get told that this is just the beginning of another big
2: story. I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. So the scene where Marcus kicks open the door and he's standing there with a bazooka. And, you know, Amarillo is standing there and he's just shooting wildly with his Gatling gun thing. And he's like, Venganza! And then Marcus shoots him with the bazooka and he goes flying do you believe amarillo is actually dead this time
0: um well we see the rpg pierce the dude in the chest it looks like it actually breaks through his chest cavity and goes like through the other side of his back and then there's a massive explosion okay so he's probably going to be at the hospital for a while <laughs>
2: Well, the thing is when they first introduced him like a couple of volumes back or a couple of a bunch of issues back, I could' have swore he died that time, but then at the end of that issue, he was just fine. well, yeah, that was when he fell off the Golden Gate Bridge after that big explosion, right right, 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 exactly. I thought he was dead, <laughs> yeah, and then we see him
0: we saw him again, and he might have had like a band aid on his arm or something <laughs> like that.
2: Look, if you can survive a fall from the Golden Gate Bridge without dying, there's a chance you could take a bazooka to the chest. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: so when we get to uh, Ballad of Marcus and Maria, part one, it's going to start with Amarillo climbing up
2: out of the fire while the two of them are kissing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what it kind of reminds me of? And this is a bit of a spoiler for those of you listening, but... Uh if Wait, anyone spoiler for what? Spoiler for what, dude? Okay. If anyone's if anyone who's listening hasn't uh read a hundred bullets, this okay, okay. might be a spoiler. So, you know, I'll count to three and then you know just fast forward like fifteen or twenty seconds or whatever. A minute One, or two. Maybe a minute or two. One, two, three. It it just reminds me of like Lano and how Every time I think that guy's dead, he just ends up being alive again. He just like, keeps coming back. He's a cockroach, he was man. Just so impossible to kill. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's another comic where the you know, it's it's semi based in reality. People don't really have superpowers. They're just regular people for our for all intents and purposes, right? Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, he he just had crazy survivability. <laughs> yeah. That's a
0: good point. That's a good comparison.
2: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that was kind of his character arc, too, though. He was just kind of a tank. So I I guess I just had to assume every time that something happened to him, it just missed all his vital
1: organs. (laughs) 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 Uh,
2: Oh, well.
0: Yeah, the last page of this, it's the kind of thing that immediately makes me want to read the next issue just to see what's going to happen. Like, yeah, I don't know if the next issue is going to give us more of Marcus and Maria or if it's going to go into a flashback to show how Marcus and Saya got through all that. Or if we're going to go back to Saya and the freshman kids. But like either way, I just want to know what happens to either story. It's just super gripping right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, full disclosure for those of you who are listening, I've been reading this from the library, uh, from the digital app. But I recently just bought all three copies of the deluxe hardcovers for myself. So that's that's how much I enjoyed what I was reading. Where I was just like, mm. you know what? I think this is a good opportu- opportunity to own it. I think I want to own this. I'm going to get it.
0: When is Volume 4 coming out? I do not know. I do not know. Now you're committed <clears throat> to
2: buying it, though. I really am. I really am. There is just this one scene in line that I enjoyed. Well, mm-hmm. It's a couple of things, but – so when they go to this villa and they're going to go rescue – um, when Marcus is going to rescue Maria, there are obviously a bunch of security guards there. But then at one point he comes across this – I guess this den with these scantily cladded naked dudes or semi-naked dudes, and they're basically just her in-home kept gigolos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was kinda of funny. And then there's this one scene where one of them runs out and, you know, he's he's clearly not a tough guy. He's just trying to get out of there, just trying to save his own skin. And she's uh what's what's her name? Uh Chico's mom. Chico's yeah, Chico's mom is there and Amarolo is there and uh he he grabs the butt guy by the throat and she basically asks him, you know, what's going on and whatever and the guy you know spills the beans and all she can say to that is uh she just goes let me let me take a look she she's standing there and she goes while you fled giving me no warning you might oh uh, she goes you might fuck like a champion james but you are a coward and then the guy just breaks his neck <laughs> <laughs> it's just a funny like combination of <laughs> Things to hear and see. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I can't say I've ever seen that combination of words juxtaposed with this imagery before.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I I literally read something new in a comic book.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that I've never clever,
0: seen before. Man.
2: Yeah. It's a testament to how clever Rick Remender is. <laughs> oh man, too funny. Here's another question
0: I just thought of, but have you ever called a plumber and when they arrived they were wearing hazmat suits
2: i have not but i've never had a plumbing situation that was so severe where i would need something on that sort of a scale right because like i i could believe if your like septic tank is bad enough and you need people to go down there they're gonna need to have like some sort of protective gear yeah yeah so i believe that Especially, like, considering what the location of this house looks like. It it looks like it might be one of those places... If you told me it was one of those homes that's just kind of out on a big plot of land with its own septic tank that has to be cleared out uh, every, you know, periodically, as opposed to something connected to a primary uh, sewer system or something like that, Mm -hmm. then... I believe that when you have a plumbing problem, you need someone to come there who is like, you know, loaded for bear.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
2: That's fair. Yeah. But it well, here, here's a question that I, that I just came up with. So, when you see when when they they obviously went to great lengths to keep this guy to give the plumber a reason to wear a mask and to have him be in this mask this whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they were building up to this reveal. In your mind, did you know that it was going to be Marcus when when he kicks open that door? Like, did you know that, that that's who he was under that mask? Or was it a genuine surprise to you?
0: It was a surprise to me. Okay. I think when they showed us that this was Chico's family, though, I think yeah. that's, that made me think that Maria could have been alive and then when we finally do see her that made sense to me yeah same here but i i guess with the marcus thing that was more of a i mean it's obvious now having read this story or having read the issue but in the moment as i was reading it like it didn't i wasn't really thinking it was marcus because you know we didn't it didn't seem like marcus would have been alive to do all this Right. and we don't, Did you have you know, you know, theories? Not really. Okay. Other than, you know, he got better.
2: <laughs> well, I meant theories in terms of, like, up until the exact moment where the mask comes off and it's revealed to be Marcus. Did you have any theories in terms of who could these people be? Who, who could this one guy be?
0: Mm. No, not really, because that's typically not how I tend to read my comics or... Uh, Consume my stories. Like, I know a lot of people. Wait, wait,
2: wait, wait. You're telling me that you don't read things to see if you can outsmart it and that's where you get your validation from? Correct. I do not do that. (laughs) I don't need to validate
0: my existence and prove how clever I am as a reader by (laughs) trying to outsmart the twists and turns that the writers provide.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Do you? I don't. (laughs) I definitely know someone who does. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Do you know? (laughs) I know someone who only likes stories that he can't correctly guess what's going to happen.
2: I mean, I don't, I personally don't think that that in and of itself is an indicator of enjoyment, but you know, I guess if that's the case, you could always get some riddle books or something. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. Riddle books are a genre for a reason. People enjoy riddle books for a reason. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh,
0: but yeah, I mean, I, I re- genuinely don't really try and outsmart the book as I'm reading it. If it's something where, if the book ended and we didn't have the reveal that it was Marcus, okay, at that point, maybe I'll think, oh, I wonder who's under the mask, you know? Like that's, the at that point, I would try and, you know, weigh my theories and think about it. But in the middle of actually reading the story, no, I can't say that I, I was pausing the page and, and thinking, wait, is this Marcus? Is this Willie? Who
2: is this? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Do you do that? Uh, I don't think I pause the book while while I'm in the middle of reading it. I mean, when I'm in the middle of reading it, I'm just reading it, but... I think in the back of my mind, I do wonder who this person is. You know, maybe I'll I'll uh, field a couple of guesses as to who it might be, but I don't think. Yeah, I don't stop myself from reading it just to sit there and be like, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then I just end up doing
2: that for like fifty minutes. Ah, uh. <laughs>
0: you sound like you might need to move into the old folks' home or
2: something. <laughs> uh, yeah, overall, it's a it's it's a heck of a way to end the book, and I am I am I'm in I'm in it, man. I I I dig Deadly Class so far, and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I guess I'm still waiting for a couple of things. I I, I think ultimately by the time we get to the end of it, that, that's probably the ultimate distinction for for saying like where, where I can give a firm assessment of what my feelings towards it are. But, yeah. you know, so far as I read each chapter, I am engaged and I want to continue to read it. And I think that's as good a sign as any that the yeah, book it's, it's is been a working ride. out great you.
1: Yeah,
0: totally, totally. Also got to give some more kudos to Wes Craig because he's a good enough artist where when he draws a character, the character is recognizable. So even though that's true. we hadn't seen Marcus in a while, as soon as he shows up in the back of the van holding the RPG and and – certainly by the time we get the close up of his face in the next panel you don't
2: have to have someone say "Marcus."
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cuz you notice when when he embraces Maria, she doesn't actually say his name. That's true. That's true. And, like it makes the dialogue more believable because you know people don't always say the other person's name when it's just the yeah. two of them, right? Like there's no no real reason because they're just there's no one else that they could possibly be talking to. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, the creators just trust the art to tell the story, you know? Like, when Wes Craig draws a character, you know who that character is. When he draws Marcus, when we haven't seen him for, like, four issues, once you see him in one panel, you know that's him.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's the kind of writing, I guess, writing tick, or or I don't know what the term is, but that's the sort of thing where you are rewarded as a reader for paying attention, right? Where mm-hmm. it, it's it's them putting the faith in you to give you the best realist possible kind of dialogue that they can give you without spoon-feeding you the stuff. Um, and I've definitely had my fair share of comics that I've read where even though the people are semi-distinguishable or whatever, like, If you see, if they have to draw a lot of people after a while, sometimes you just kind of get lost in in the characters because there are just so many of them and they don't necessarily do a good enough job of distinguishing one from another, right? Especially
0: if it's a comic where the characters don't all wear unique costumes because they're not superheroes.
2: If you think about it, Marcus really could look like any generic teenager if if you really think about it right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there isn't anything particularly special about the way he looks he doesn't have hook hands or (laughs) peg legs or something um he like yeah uh west craig doesn't have to go to the effort of giving this kid a a tattoo or or some (laughs) sort of special indicative mark all he has is his haircut and that face, you know, and, and just looking at that, you can look at that and go, Oh yeah, that's Marcus.
1: Mhm. Mhm.
2: But now you, you're making me question. I wonder if there was someone who was reading the series who turned that page and was like, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> now you got me wondering, I want to, I want to meet that person now. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there's one guy who's like, I don't get it. Who is that?
0: Wouldn't it be even funnier if we were wrong and this isn't Marcus? Oh, dude!
2: What if that's the ultimate misdirection? Because <laughs> I, I, you just made me think of something too. Like another, another thing is that Maria—they don't. When you see her, she's still wearing that makeup that she wears. When it's not really her. Yeah, well, but that's the thing. If she didn't have the makeup on, if it was just her, like, I think that would have been a huge gamble on their part because there's a chance where I would have just been like, who's, I, I could see someone getting to that scene where she's in the torture chamber and she looks up and if she doesn't have that makeup on, they're just like, wait, who's this?
0: Right? Yeah, I would have to go back to the last time we saw her. Was she wearing her face paint when she got knocked out and they took her away?
2: Actually, that's a good point. I don't think she was.
0: Yeah, I don't think she was either cuz I feel like she, she was only, at school.
2: Yeah, yeah, they were at school. Yeah, she was at school and she went to them to uh what's it called She went to Master Lin's office and mm-hmm. he he messes her up. So, yeah. there's no reason for her to have the face paint on. Well, yeah. When she looks up from from being electrocuted, she's she's wearing the face makeup. Yeah. So
0: I wonder if there's any explanation for that, or if it's just one of those things where we have to accept that uh, Chico's mom decided to make a mockery of her by putting her back in her face paint for some odd reason, or not, or
2: I don't know. I'm I I have a feeling. I have a feeling it might just be so that when we get to this scene, we know who she is. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, they might be gambling on the fact that they're going to be like, well, what are the odds someone's going to go back to that issue and be like, wait a minute? She wasn't wearing her makeup in issue, you know, 18? (laughs) Dear Mr. Remender, what do you take us for, fools? (laughs) I've found a
0: continuity error in your comic.
2: I do not enjoy being bamboozled or flim-flammed.
0: <laughs> wow, flim-flammed. That's a term I haven't heard since the 1920s.
2: Yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're going to be big, see? Someday you're going to be in the pictures, talking pictures, colored pictures. <laughs> That's not my 1920s gangster. That that was my 19 direct uh, 1920s director. <laughs>
0: Man, people in that decade sure talked funny.
2: Yeah, <laughs> assuming that that's how they talked. <laughs> uh, we called them talkies, you know. <laughs> no more silent pictures here.
0: Any right. final thoughts?
2: No, no, I, I just, I'm enjoying it, and I want more. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. So, all right. Well, if there's nothing else, then if you have any questions, feel free to email us. Uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say. You can email us at betweenthegutterspodcast at gmail dot com, or you can DM us at between the gutters. Please follow and like and subscribe on our Instagram yeah if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on please just give us a rating and it helps to boost us to other people that might be looking for something to listen to we would really appreciate that
0: that's right thanks everybody thanks for listening next week we will be discussing a couple of shorter recent young readers green lantern comics Those are going to be Green Lantern Alliance and Green Lantern Legacy by Min Lee and Andy Tong. Stay tuned for that, and we will catch you then.
2: Peace out. Bye, everyone.